Hello, fellow Blue Earther. Welcome to another podcast. I'm Laura Nesbitt, and today I'm chatting to Richard Walker, Managing Director of Iceland. I could tell instantly that Richard was a family man as he was keen to tell me how much he loves to spend time with his family, especially outdoors. On today's pod, we talk about the issues surrounding the ongoing food waste problem, the most recent disruptions to the food supply chain, and what Iceland is doing to combat its in-store plastic packaging problem. Most importantly, we discuss how Iceland is making its business purposeful as well as profitable. Hi Richard, it's lovely to have you on today's podcast. Thank you, lovely to be here. On first impressions, you seem like a bit of a family man. Would that be, is that the case? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yep. Um, married with two kids, two daughters, and uh, it certainly keeps me busy kind of away from work as well. But um, yeah, just normal, normal family stuff. Um, do they spend a lot of time outdoors? Yes, they do. Yeah. And, um, you know, I really enjoy that, that, that part of parenting, as it were. So um, we're lucky enough to live in the countryside and we're always out and about like going for walks but um also I take them climbing and surfing and uh they're both super enthusiastic about about nature so um that's kind of quite inspiring for me as well in terms of uh wanting to do what I can to make sure that you know they they uh, can enjoy nature when they're my age and uh continue to you know get benefit from it. So on to your role with Iceland. I noticed that you um, went back to be managing director in 2018. So was it a little bit like going home? Uh, yeah, it was a bit. Yeah, um, it's uh, so obviously, you know, the, the family business started by mum and dad 51 years ago. And um, uh, it's something I've always grown up with. So, you know, I always had kind of a, a knowledge of the business, but it was always kind of divined from around the kitchen table. Um, and I had a totally separate career in property and did my own thing for 10 years. So it wasn't until my thirties I actually joined the business, but it was weird because I'd obviously grown up with the business and, and it was very much merged into our family narrative and conversation as I was growing up. But, um, I didn't really know any detail of it other than that kind of passing knowledge. So it was really good to to get involved and get stuck in into the business and appreciate um, you know, the the um the business that's sort of given me all the opportunity in life. Do you think your mum and dad ever expected Iceland to get this big? Um no. I think he was he was always he was always sort of paranoid it'd all end tomorrow. But I think that kind of healthy dose of paranoia is is why it's done so well because we've never we've never rested. Um, you know, we're always uh, trying to reinvent ourselves and trying new business lines and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, when he first started, um, him and mum also set up a fish and chip shop because they were worried that Iceland wouldn't have any, any longevity. So um, they used to work in Iceland in the day and then open the chippy on a um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday at night. So it was quite hard work. But then after about a year, I think they realised that they didn't really need the chip shop anymore and they closed it. Very, very entrepreneurial. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, before you came back in 2018, um, you did some work experience in the customer care department, I think. And I think I read somewhere else that you also stack shelves. So for any budding entrepreneurs out there, what can you tell them about how important it is to be kind of working on the ground level before you work your way up? 
Yeah, you've done your research. Um, <laughs> I have. <laughs> um, no, like so important. I'm so glad I did it. Um, I think when I said to dad, I want to join the family firm, um, like I said, I had a totally different career in property. And he said, don't bother in his kind of straight Yorkshire way. He said, just collect rents. It's much easier. And that's right. Like it is a very uh, tough business, but obviously I'm very glad I, I did do it. But we agreed that the best way would be to work in a shop for a year. So I worked in shops around London and I, I got signed off as store manager after six months. But um, yeah, I stacked the shelves and drove the van and worked on the checkout. And I think to do that was firstly essential in terms of really understanding the front line of the business where the money is taken and the nuts and bolts of it all. But secondly, just very humbling in terms of understanding and appreciating just how hard our colleagues work, you know, for the shared success of the business. In terms of Iceland driving um, sustainability, uh, what's happening in the next five to 10 years? What have you guys got planned? Yeah, well, we we obviously made a, a lot of kind of groundbreaking commitments over the last couple of years. And I think people are always expecting us to make new ones because we, you know, we have kind of taken the lead on a lot of these big issues from palm oil to plastics. But actually, I think our focus now is just to keep our heads down and, and crack on with what we've already pledged. Um, you know, we've we've successfully removed uh, palm oil Um and, uh, you know, we, we did that, but we still have a long way to go in terms of hitting our goal of halving our, our food waste as a business uh, by 2025. Um, we're, we've also pledged to become uh, net zero across scope one to three uh, by 2040. We're the first retailer in the world to, to sign the, the um, climate pledge. And then, of course, there's our huge commitment on plastics, which is taking up a lot of time, a lot of effort, and there's a lot of focus on that. And our original goal was to become plastic free across our own label products by the end of next year. Um, the reality is because of the pandemic, because of lots of different reasons that I can go into, um, we're, we're not quite going to get there, but we're still very, very much committed to the destination. It's just going to take us a bit longer to get there when, when than we thought. So... Yeah, that's what we're doing. And obviously, we're doing all of that in the context of a cost of living crisis. And our customers um, are the most hard pressed um, around the country. So value for money, making sure that they can feed their kids um, is, is, of course, paramount. And we've we've got to keep our value um, and our offering whilst we try and do good along the way at the same time. So there's a lot of plates to spin at the moment. What's um, what's so hard about replacing plastic? Um, in terms of wrapping fruit and veg and other other things that you sell? It's, um, I mean, plastic's a miracle material, really. And that's why it's wrapped and bagged and coated and packaged um, everything. Uh, but I think the, the industry's lazy over-reliance of it and frivolous use of single-use plastic is the, the real enemy. Um, and we, yeah, we set ourselves an audacious goal to get out of it completely. And that was to throw down the gauntlet to say, look, we can't recycle our way out of the plastics pandemic. And at the time, that's all the industry was focused on. And it was great that we fired the starting pistol. And since then, everyone's come over to our way of thinking and agrees that we've got to reduce production of plastic at source. The problem is um, it, it's such a good material and it's very cheap. It's very lightweight. It's very versatile. It's very convenient. Customers love all that. And, you know, consumers have got addicted to it as well when we just unpackaged all of our fruit and veg sales dropped 30 percent and obviously that's not sustainable as a business to to um 
to lose 30% of our sales because I've got 30,000 people who rely on us being successful for a paycheck each week. Um, so uh, it, it's just a, a, a really smart material. That's where all the investment has gone into. Um, and that's why we're sort of coming from behind looking at alternatives like pulp and board and paper um, as replacements. But, you know, we, we need uh, investment in new lines and line speeds and, and packaging. Uh, we need more innovation and we need the industry to coalesce around plastic alternatives so that we can scale up the alternative um, solutions. So are you investing kind of in your own innovation lab to come up with solutions or are you outsourcing to a third party yeah we we always um outsource because we're we're a you know a a fairly flat structure as a business we don't own kind of manufacturers and and packaging plants and that sort of thing but we work very closely with a number of uh key suppliers and um that you know that our focus is very much on working with them to try and deliver for us uh so that that's how we do it but I've, i've personally taken a big interest in it and that's why i flew out to Finland to look at the forests that our sustainable board trays are coming from, um, to, to look at the new technologies they're working on, like transparent paper, which will replace the lidding film on our ready meals. And I think it's really important that, you know, every decision I make has consequences and sometimes there can be unintended consequences. And I think environmental history is littered with those. So it's very important that I follow our supply chains and really understand, um, you know, the the, um, the decisions we're taking, the impacts it's having. And um, you briefly mentioned you wanted to halve food waste. So by that, do you mean uh, food that isn't bought in store? Yes, um, we're... We're at a natural advantage in in terms of our consumers' food waste because we're predominantly a frozen food retailer, and we we would do this because it's in our interest. But um, we've done loads of research in terms of uh, putting families on a diet of all fresh food uh, for a couple of weeks, and then the same families on the equivalent food but frozen for a couple of weeks. And we found that not only did they save a lot of money because frozen food is cheaper because uh, there's kind of less energy required and, and longer supply chains and that sort of thing. But actually they halved their food waste and they can do that because you you consume what you need and then you you put the rest back in the, the freezer. A lot of the narrative around food waste is about freezing leftovers. But actually, if you just buy frozen food in the in the first place, that is the the solution to, um, to sorting a lot of food waste at home. But as a business, yeah, we do uh, produce food waste, um, and that, but it is very low compared to the rest of the industry. However, I'm not happy about it, and um, we're coming up with kind of innovative solutions, giving some of it away to staff at the end of its life, uh, giving away to uh, customers who are shopping online, uh, coming up with better processes in store in terms of reductions. And I'm, I, we've made huge strides in terms of um, uh, reducing our, our food waste, but th- there's more to do. The other thing we're doing is partnering with local community charities where we're, we're repurposing the, the food that otherwise we'd, we'd send to anaerobic digestion. And, you know, we're giving it away to charities that can then give it on to food banks and the like. We've actually given away over two million meals now um, over the last year, which is which is fantastic. Is that what um, the Iceland's Food Charitable Foundation is? Is that is that? Linked? Yeah, so it, um, it it does a bit of that, but actually um, we we have some sort of high profile um, 
charities that we're particularly focused on Alzheimer's research. Um, cause my, my late mum who passed away last year, she had a, a 10 year struggle with Alzheimer's. So it's, it's particularly important to the family, but actually we found that a lot, pretty much all of our colleagues are touched by it in some way or the other, because, you know, there's over a million people dealing with dementia now, and that has associated kind of impacts on a lot of families around the UK. Um, so We've uh, given over £20 million to Alzheimer's research over the last couple of years and helped fund the world, the UK's first uh, dementia research institute. We also do, um, uh, we look for high impact charities that are underfunded. So we've also helped to fund uh, sepsis awareness, uh, which, is a, which is a big issue. And then, of course, environmental initiatives. So um, restoring Welsh peatlands with the Welsh Wildlife Trust, um, uh, partnering with Surface Against Sewage, of which I'm chairman, um, to uh, sponsor their million mile beach cleans. Um, so, yeah, loads of, loads of different things and, and something that, that I'm very proud of. You know, it's a foundation that we set up probably over uh, 15 years now, but it's given tens of millions to charity. Um, and it's a, a really important thing for our colleagues to to sort of support. We have an annual charity week and they they're really enthusiastic about raising money for it. Um, and, you know, I think everyone is very proud of, of, of what we do in the, the charity space. Just two that stood out for me, surfers against sewage. I don't surf, but I swim a lot all year round in the sea. Um, and daily I get notifications about sewage spill, spilling into my favourite swim spots. Um, but also just um, the charity that you give to for sepsis. A couple of years ago, I would have had no comprehension on uh, what sepsis was. And then my dad unfortunately got it in lockdown and now is a dialysis patient as a result. And it's really funny, isn't it? How sometimes you don't really feel like you need charitable support. And then all of a sudden you can find yourself in a situation in which your whole world changes and you could not be more thankful for charities, but also questioning where charities get their funding from. You know, we're so grateful. So thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Before this interview started, I was thinking as a child, like what was my, what do I remember of Iceland? And whether this is embarrassing or not, it would always be the adverts with Kerry Katona yeah. <laughs> on TV because I used to watch a lot of TV as a kid. Um, and so far in the 17 minutes that we've been talking, um, Iceland is obviously contributing to a lot of things outside of um just you know nutrition and food so how do you communicate that to the public that you're doing all of this this work because unless I was to go sifting through Iceland's website on the about page I don't think I'd I'd really know yeah yeah, you're right. It's a constant challenge. I mean, and we are a bit of a Marmite brand. We've been going for 51 years. Uh, everyone knows us, but quite frankly, you know, some some um, some people wouldn't want to come into our shops. And I think partly that is because we have been fairly relentless with our kind of cheeky value messaging over the years, like uh, Kerry, who was a great ambassador for a while and then ran into a bit of trouble. So, um, yeah, we, we ended that partnership. But yeah, we're, we're, we're known for the products we sell. Um, there is a lot of snobbery around frozen food, mistakenly, in this this country. You know, some of my posher mates will talk about how they only buy fresh fish, but actually there's no such thing unless you're on the docks in in, um, uh, in Penzance. Um, you know, the, the, the 
chilled pizza that you'll buy from uh, Waitrose that costs 10 quid is actually frozen and, and defrosted. Uh, same with the chilled soup. Same with the fresh hot cross buns that are actually frozen um, uh, six months before and then just heated up in store. Um, even same with your fresh uh, turkey at Christmas. They're, they're put into a deep, they're slaughtered three, four months before Christmas and then put into a deep freeze. Um, so there's a lot of kind of um, snobbery, uh, which is misguided in the UK around frozen food um, and Iceland. But that's because we are a value retailer. We've got 5 million customers a week and we do serve everyone from all walks of life. But the reality is our, our core demographic are very hard pressed. Some of our consumers might only have 25 quid a week to spend on food. So in terms of our consumer messaging, it is fairly relentless in terms of value. But that's right because, you know, that's that's why they're coming to us. And I think whenever we've strayed too much into corporate messaging and um, purpose messaging, you know, that doesn't... Um, that doesn't chime so well with consumers who might not have a penny to, to spare. Um, so it's always a bit of a, a balancing act. I haven't, yeah, I haven't come to think of it. I haven't seen any Iceland adverts on the TV at the moment. Are you, have you got any up and coming campaigns? Um, we No, no, we don't. I mean, we do, we're doing a lot of PR, you know, we're just not doing much paid media advertising. Also, when 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 we banned uh, palm oil, we had yeah. that. You remember that cartoon, the repurposed Greenpeace ad, Rangtang, which uh, oh, yeah. was yeah. banned from terrestrial TV uh, because it was deemed too political. But it actually became the most watched Christmas ad of all time. It's now been watched by over ninety million people. But that sort of rewrote the rules a bit on paid media spend. Um, we didn't need to book slots on Friday night or Coronation Street and and show off our, our brand new ad. It just went viral on, on social media. Obviously, a lot of that was serendipity, but it, it does make you think, is it, is it really worth spending so much money on advertising? I don't think my mum would ever hesitate um, shopping in Iceland. Just going back to what you're saying about having uh, friends or family that are a bit snobbish my parents will go food shopping together my dad will park in Waitrose and say I'm going to Waitrose <laughs> and my mum will walk across the road and go to Asda and then she'll go to Iceland and our Good freezer is always full of frozen food well, there you go. Uh, to, uh, almost to the point that I have had to step out of the food situation in the house because I just can't compete with mum and dad who compete with each other about what's going in it sounds like it I, but I side with your mum <laughs> definitely sounds like she's got good taste They've had very different upbringings, which I think um, does shape uh, what you're willing to spend on food and where you're willing to go. And also, you know, I'll admit that we do have a weekly a lot of food waste in our house, but purely based on the fact that we do not communicate about what we've bought. And food, food waste is interesting because, you know, the average family wastes £70 a month on food. But actually, if you've only got 25 quid a week to spend on food in the first place, believe me, you're not wasting a penny. Um, so actually, you know, a, a lot of the narrative around food waste is is the wrong way around. You know, it, it's sort of quite establishment or it's celebrity chefs talking about how you can use disused carrot tops and make a lovely pesto and freeze leftovers. And actually, if you've got no time or money, um, the real the real insights and knowledge are people like our customers um, who, who are experts in in saving money and not wasting food. What do you think has affected the food supply chain more, Brexit or COVID? 
Um, uh, probably, probably a bit of all of it. I think the impacts of Brexit overall has been fairly limited. There are pressure points like the Northern Irish border. We've got a business in the Republic and we've got a lot of stores in Northern Ireland. That can be uh, quite um, challenging, as can exporting to some of our uh, franchise partners around around Europe. Um, and in the Nordics. So that that's kind of logistical challenges. But in terms of uh, pressures on supply chains, um, yeah, COVID was absolutely sideblinded the industry. We had unprecedented panic buying, but that was very much a demand led as opposed to a supply side issue. There was no shortage of toilet rolls. It's just the, the nation went inexplicably on a frenzied panic buy of them. And it did sort of show a few cracks in our um, just-in-time supply chain. Um, but I think the industry kind of uh, collaborated really well through the pandemic and made sure that, you know, we helped help to keep, keep the nation fed. And we became a, a critical kind of, you know, uh, resource through that time. The real impact uh, now, which is having loads of unintended consequences, is, is the war in Ukraine. And obviously that, you know, the suffering of the people in Ukraine pales in, into insignificance in terms of um, what they're going through. But it is having knock-on consequences. Global price of wheat, for example, because a lot of it is produced in Russia and Ukraine. Lack of fertilizer, a lot of which comes from Russia. That's impacting um, things like milk prices and also meat prices in the UK. And then the big one is sunflower oil. And I mentioned we boycotted palm oil. We replaced a lot of palm oil with sunflower oil. 80% of Europe's sunflower oil comes from Ukraine. And now we're having to make the the really uh, tough choice to go, hopefully temporarily, back into palm oil on a, on a limited number of lines because there is literally no sunflower oil at the moment. This next question will highlight how limited my knowledge is on understanding food and where supermarkets source from. But actually, if I was to walk down your frozen vegetable and fruit section, I, number one, probably wouldn't think about where you'd sourced it from, but also I wouldn't be able to comprehend how far it had to travel to get to Iceland. So do you generally source like groups of vegetable from a country or do you kind of, do you do sourcing from within the UK? Um, Well, over half of our products are, are sourced in the UK. Um, so that's good. And, and particular categories like fresh meat is very important to consumers that it is British. Frozen because of the two-year shelf life, um, because of the fact that we can store in our facilities and, and build up stock, that tends to have kind of longer uh, supply chains. Um, but we've been working as a private family business, we've been working with our kind of limited supply base compared to Tesco and the like for years. And we have a good long-term relationship with with many of them. Also, what's interesting is um, how far a product came is not necessarily uh, a, a judgment on environmentally its impact. So, um, you know, some of our fish, for example, or our party food ranges comes from the Far East but it's put on a a frozen container on a boat and shipped over the course of a month or more uh, over to the UK. And actually the the carbon impact of that product is potentially lower than your air freighted Norwegian salmon that you buy fresh, um, which is flown in daily into Waitrose. So it it really depends and is is quite complicated um, in terms of the story behind the product. So just linking to... uh 
the battle of the supermarkets, rather famously competitive. Um, does it sort of provide inspiration or does it bring up other emotions? <laughs> no, it, I mean, it's fairly relentless. Uh, I think someone said in food retail, you've got to wake up every morning and want to kill the competition. I mean, it is it is very, very competitive. One of the most competitive markets in, in the world. And our margins are very thin, but that is a good deal for consumers. Um, so yeah, it's a it's a very competitive market commercially, but actually now supermarkets are competing on how environmentally sustainable and socially responsible they are, and I think that's that's a good thing. Um, and that's because there's a whole new generation of consumers who want to associate themselves with with brands with a purpose. So it kind of makes long term commercial sense because the 18 year olds who are turning up at our tills and applying for jobs now, um, they 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 really want to associate themselves with businesses that are trying to do good. And that's why you're seeing more and more um, competition, uh, healthy competition amongst supermarkets in terms of reducing plastics, uh, which is great. They're now on that. They're not just talking about recycling, um, but also everything else uh, in between as, as well. A lot around food poverty, obviously, at the moment with the cost of living crisis um, in terms of being more socially responsible. Um, and if in the financial markets, we have the ESG movement, and that is really kind of raising the bar in terms of governance and reporting uh, on, on a lot of these purpose-led issues. And actually, you know, it, it makes financial sense now to, to, be, um, to tick those ESG boxes because it unlocks cheaper capital, more capital, um, and it, it strengthens your business. And one of my final questions, do you think your children will follow in your footsteps? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Well, it, when I was growing up, it was never discussed. And actually, I never even wanted to. And I think it was really important that I went off, had a separate career, did my own thing, proved to other people, but actually to myself, that I could succeed on my own account. Um, and like I said, it was only when I got to, into my 30s that I, I joined Iceland. Um, and I, I think, yeah, just very much depends what, what they're into and how, how they develop. Just um, so long as they're happy and they try their hardest. I think that's, that's all I want. That's a good parenting philosophy. I like that. Do you have many conversations about sustainability over the dinner table? Um, yeah, we do as a family and we have a bit of a kind of uh, sustainability plan, which like we're not perfect. I'm also very aware Iceland is not a sustainable business. We're a high volume mass market food retailer subject to many, many contradictions. We've been a great corporate activist, you know, throwing down the gauntlet on palm oil, on plastics. And even, you know, my dad's um, in in the uh, in the early 90s, um, we took all CFC gases out of our refrigeration and sold the Kyoto range of fridges and freezers, which was the only uh, product ever commercially endorsed by Greenpeace. There's a stat. Um, and then he became the first retailer in the world to um, take out GM genetically modified ingredients from our own label foods. So we've always led the way on campaigning like that. But actually, you know, we, we, we don't put more back into nature than we take from it. So I'm acutely aware we're not a sustainable business. In fact, I don't think any business in existence is, even some lovely business like Patagonia. Um, and actually, as a family, you know, we're, we're, we, um, we have a higher carbon footprint than most, but we are trying to do what we can where we can. And I think the important thing is not to preach and not to tell people off, but to inform and share ideas and talk about it. Well, it's been lovely having you on the pod. Hopefully see you in October for the Blue Earth Summit. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks very much.
Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.